Hello, everyone, and welcome to our special physical distancing episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie. And on this episode, we are doing the 40th Best Picture winner in the heat of the night. Yeah, we are definitely practicing social distancing right now. So we are recording over Skype, and um, I miss you. I miss you, too. We're so far apart. (laughs) I don't like it. I don't like it. Yes, as Ian said, this is our 40th Best Picture winner in The Heat of the Night. It is a 1967 mystery drama directed by Norman Jewison, starring Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. Um, We saw Rod Steiger in On the Waterfront. He played Charlie, uh, Marlon Brando's character's brother. Oh, I knew So if he looked it all familiar. Yeah, I was going to say he was pretty familiar. Um, It is based on John Ball's 1965 novel of the same name, and it is about a black police detective from Philly who investigates a murder in small town Mississippi. It spawned two sequels, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs in 1970 and The Organization in 1971. And it was the basis of the 1988 TV series by the same name. So super influential. Well, and super good. Like it was I, so good. I totally get why it spawned multiple like reincarnations. I do too. And I love a buddy cop movie. I mean, obviously this one, I'm going to talk about it more and a little bit more about like what was going on culturally in the country at the time it was made. It deals a lot with the issues of race and, you know, societal issues like that that were super relevant at the time continue to be super relevant today. But I also found it just delightful. Like oh, it yes. was, I had fun watching it, which it, right now when you're, we're all like cooped up in our apartments at our houses, like because of all the stupid coronavirus stuff. And when I say all this stupid coronavirus stuff, I mean the fact that like it's awful and it sucks and we have to be doing this. But I, this movie, like for all its seriousness and everything that it touched on that was so weighty, I still thought it was a absolute blast to watch. Oh, same. I so, so, so enjoyed it. And there was so much righteous indignation that got so much payoff. Oh, my God. Oh, my yes. God. It's so, 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 so good. Anyway, sorry. Oh, I needed that. Yeah, it's okay. We'll, <laughs> we'll talk about it. I did, too. We'll talk about it a little bit more as we uh, get more into notes. So other nominations and awards that this movie got, Rod Steiger won for Best Actor. I do think he did a phenomenal job in it. Um, it won for Best Film Editing best sound mixing and um sterling Siliphant, what a name one for best adapted screenplay oh yes jewison was nominated for best director but didn't win and james richard was nominated for best sound effects but didn't win i think it's notable that poitier was not nominated yeah that kind of i think makes me angry I think he at least deserved a nomination um he did previously i did check to see if he was nominated for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which also came out that same year. He wasn't nominated for that, but he had won for Lilies of the Field mm-hmm. in 1963. Um, and he was the first African-American actor to win that award. Oh, well, that's Back good. in 1963. Yeah. So, yeah, because I, I saw he wasn't nominated, wasn't even nominated for this. And I was like, how is that? And then I was like, let me make sure that that man got an Oscar at some point because, boy, did he deserve it. Yeah, some of those, like, smoldering stares. Ugh. Only a great actor could pull those off. He's, yeah, he's phenomenal. And I definitely think he should have, at the very minimum, gotten a nomination for this. This movie also ranks number 75 in AFI's Top 100 on their 10th anniversary list. Uh, Virgil Tibbs, Poitiers' character, is number 19 on AFI's Heroes and Villains. 
obviously he's the number 19 hero. I thought he was uh, a villain. The... Did did I watch oh, this movie yeah. wrong? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you did. Um the quote they call me Mr. Tibbs came in as number 16 on AFI's quotes. Did you recognize that quote? I didn't, but I did think that Mr. Tibbs would be an amazing cat name. I'm sure you've heard variations of that quote and other stuff. It's often, often quoted. And it was number 21 on AFI's top 100 cheers. So they're inspirational films. You can't see it, but I'm just like, yes, I need that cheers. I'm sorry. I'm, yes. I'm in a weird mood today. So <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> in a weird mood me all for the being time more now? Disruptive. <laughs> I mentioned Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, so that was one of the other Best Picture nominees that year, along with Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, and The Graduate. So 1967, great year for films. There were a couple others that I saw that like weren't nominated for Best Picture, but are very recognizable, uh-huh. highly lauded, reviewed films. Um, so another year where we just had like a lot of really, really good films. And then the last thing I want to do before we go into our watch notes is I really want to set the stage for what was happening in the country at that time. So it's 1967. We are right in the thick of the civil rights movement, um, a lot of which is also tied to the anti-Vietnam War movement that's going on at the same time. So there's a lot of civil unrest in general. Um, We had the Supreme Court case Loving versus Virginia, which struck down laws that prohibited interracial marriage. There are tons of protests going on. There are race riots in Tampa, Buffalo, Newark, Minneapolis, and Detroit. Um, Oh, and D.C. all going on at the same time. Thurgood Marshall becomes the first African-American justice of the Supreme Court. And in not 1967, but on April 4th, 1968, a few days before the 40th Academy Awards ceremony is supposed to take place, is the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So... All of that is going on when this film comes out. Oh, geez. Yeah. That's a lot to unpack, especially given the setting and the fact that the lead character is Sidney Poitier. (laughs) Yeah, it's... Who, for the people who don't know, like me, who didn't know at the beginning, is an African-American actor. (laughs) He is... An amazing actor. He's so good. Oh, yeah. I guess when because our last episode, we said we're gonna do this one. I was like, Oh, my God, it's a Poitier film. And you were like, I don't know who that is. And I was like, Oh, get ready. Because (laughs) he has a presence that is almost unlike any other actor you've seen. Like, I, I feel like whenever he is on screen, he owns it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the cinematography in this made it even more so. Oh my so God. I was actually reading that this was the first film or at least one of the first films where they actually lit it with the idea of an African-American actor in mind, which is something that like I just I just never thought about. With, but of course, the like different skin tones would show up differently based on different lighting and different film. Well, yeah, even in like still photography, they had this issue where the reference picture was a Caucasian woman. <laughs> Yeah, I'm obviously not a photographer (laughs) because like this never occurred to me. But like, of course. And so um, I think one that tells you to kind of 
how we're starting to see shifts in society and shifts in Hollywood, but also just like how big Sidney Poitier was at the time. Yeah. Like I said, he'd won the Oscar several years earlier. He has three amazing films that come out this year in the heat of the night, which wins best picture. Guess who's coming to dinner, which was also nominated and also deals a lot with race relations. And then also uh, there was one other that I wrote down um, to Sir with love, which also deals with race relations. So just like also great movies, but like very important societally and culturally at the time. And then all helmed by a phenomenal actor. So he had a really good year. Ah, good. I'm glad that makes me happy. All right. So we want to go into watch notes. Yeah. So because I want to talk about the opening with the Ray Charles song. Oh my God. It was so sixties. And the tech, like Technicolor-ish, like pop of all the red, like ah, uh, I was immediately was so bought good. in. <laughs> I the pay, this movie is paced wonderfully. Yes, I uh, completely, which agree. I think is phenomenal, and it starts with the action right away. I think this is the first like non-musical soundtrack we've had, right? Like everything else has been a score, or if it had a soundtrack, it was because it was a movie musical. I mean. I hesitate to make an absolute statement because I'm afraid of the one counterexample that will prove me wrong. <laughs> oh no! Um, wait, 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 wait! No, no, I no, no, can't no, no. think of any. Um, on the waterfront had that Bernstein score, but that was a score, right? Not a like it wasn't like songs, like contemporary songs written for the movie, or just contemporary songs used in the movie. I think you're right. Right? Like it was it was like a score. I'm separating like soundtrack versus score in a way that I'm not sure if that's like technically correct, but this is my podcast, so Okay. This is how we're I'm doing good. it. I mean it's the first like made for movie song that I remember. So like yeah. <laughs> other other than like a musical, yeah. So I think that was great. I love they they use shadows beautifully in this. They use shadows like they would in a black and white movie. And that was one of the first things that I noticed is it's like, okay, I have a black and white noir, like hearkening back to the lost weekend, but it's in color. And so the fact they were able to pull that yeah. off also made me bought in immediately. So I, I don't know, like, ah, so good. Yeah. Yeah. So when we start at night with him coming into the town, one, it's super dark, so you get these like little pops of red here and there amongst the darkness. And the thing that they did that I really enjoyed was how they focused on just Sidney Poitier's legs as he's walking into mm -hmm. the train station. Because it's like, oh, who is this big mysterious figure who's about to make an arrival on the scene in this town? So the again, building that suspense there, both with the lighting and the color scheme, and then kind of how they kept the frame really tied in on the mysterious legs of this stranger like here for it i also thought that um where you have the deputy who's driving the cop car through the town at night on those like a lot of them are dirt streets mm -hmm. it is very clearly like small town i love the way they just let it be dark a lot of the time yeah well and it gets it that made really... it creepier yes. it gives you the atmosphere and i think we really need that contrast to, to like set the whole mood of the film as a noir. So I'm, yes, I'm totally Agreed. in agreement with you. Mm -hmm. And I like when you're, you have the deputy stopping at the diner and I, everyone is like so, you, so clearly sweaty and there's like bugs. And I was like, it's a Southern summer. 
I was like, that is a southern <laughs> summer right there with no Harking AC. Back to, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird opening sequence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you oh can, they set the scene so beautifully. Um, the set design, I think, is amazing. Everything's like appropriately grungy and like a little run down. And they like pack the police station set with like all those files on the walls uh-huh. and everything. I just, the production value is great. I also loved the kind of griminess of the set too, because it seemed to heighten that main conflict with Mrs. Colbert trying to pull all of this like factory investment away when she kind of said, you will find the killer of my husband or not, which I skipped kind of like way ahead there. But the set design really heightened that whole thing for me because you're seeing kind Mm -hmm. of a slightly economic underprivileged town they're like definitely still pretty much bustling that old style kind of like small southern town that you have stereotypically in your mind but you can kind of see signs of i guess decay in some areas yeah like they they need the investment it makes the um central conflict that and like initial motives that they put in front of you for the murder that is the center of the film it makes all of those so much more plausible and believable because you're like, yeah, I be- I believe from what I've seen that this place like really could use the investment and could use the jobs that uh, the Colberts are pr- supposedly bringing into it. Um, so let's talk about the murder because we get the yeah. long winding shots with uh, Sam Wood, the deputy who like, God, what an awful person. I mean, yes. Uh, driving his cop car, he stops in front of the one house where you have the naked... Dolores, um, seven, seven, I'm assuming a Coke uh, with the window just covering what it needs to cover. So 60s. <laughs> uh, Hayes Code would be repealed, I think, in 68. So we're a bit like a year until the Hayes Code gets repealed. Like It's clearly not being super enforced at this point, which also another thing I wanted to point out that this film, I think, is our first contemporary film really since the apartment i think you could say that west side story is like quote Mm -hmm. contemporary but because of the nature of it it's it's almost like a fantasy contemporary if you know what i mean like all of the fashions are contemporary but there's still like a a little bit of a shine to everything because it's a musical oh yeah Um, you could see it in the sets they were larger than life yeah so the difference between (laughs) like 1960s the apartment which is very much a contemporary piece to in the heat of the night in 1967 like you see how much change has happened because this film to me felt a lot more like a stereotypical 70s film yeah and especially with the focus and the shots in the cars i think is really what drove that home for me it like felt like a 70s cop drama <laughs> yeah which i love um oh, yeah, it's good. so sam coming down the alley and at first the way they shot this i was a little confused because i was like wait did sam hit the guy with his cop car but no he just finds yeah he the was body of enough. mr colbert <laughs> they did like a weird like zoom in on his rear tail like lighting up like when he stopped the car and i was like wait did he hit him i don't understand why do he stop so fast and i was like oh well, i guess because there's a body and then you have all of the people gathered around looking at the body and we well, get... I was going to say, even before that, the way that he is in disbelief of actually seeing what's in front of him. And what I find really interesting is, again, they're, they're pulling these pops of red through throughout. So you start with the, he- the tail light, the brake light. 
super like, oh my God, in your face, close up here. And then you have him with the blood on his fingers as he's scrambling back to the car. So Yeah, I, which I, think, I was like, don't touch the body. Well, yeah. <laughs> There's so much evidence contamination in this entire film. It's fine. It was the 60s. <laughs> um, but no, that just again heightened it. And the way that he was lit in such stark contrast to the background makes it all pop in such a visceral way that really like gave me the feels. Yeah. Like not the emotional feels, but like the holy shit feels. Well, once he finally calls for help, we get introduced to the doctor who this doctor will be proven wrong at some point for sure. And then we are introduced to Gillespie, the police chief played by Rod Steiger. I thought, like I said before, I thought he does a phenomenal job. And I like the character detail that they kind of set up that they use throughout the film where he's chewing the gum really, really fast. And then once he like makes a decision or like has an idea, he stops very suddenly. <laughs> and then like yeah, has this little gives tick. the very direct orders. Because yeah, it's a it's a little tick that they use later in the film in a way that I really, really love. But we're setting up his character and he seems well, first off, I knew the premise of this film, so I was like, I know I'm going to not like you for at least the first half of the film. I was like, but hopefully you have a good character arc. But I think they do a good job of, of establishing him as a little bit apart from the rest of his contemporaries, because he seems like the only one who might be competent in any way. Oh, yeah, that's that is my biggest takeaway from this. Well, that's a lie. That's not my biggest takeaway. But the bumbling posse of police officers that he has around him like okay i know it's a small town but you couldn't find one person just one person who knew what they were doing no because no, like we yeah. immediately get into is it sam that ultimately like first arrests virgil in the train station oh yeah because what they say is they're like it could have been a hitchhiker. And I'm like, statistics show that you are far more likely to be murdered by someone you know than just a random stranger. But like, apparently, they don't have true crime podcasts back in the 60s, but whatever. Also, you heard it here first. Maggie knows me really well. <laughs> Guys, if I go missing, you talk to Ian. Oh, my goodness. They He sends Sam out like to check like the train station, which, of course... Who's at the train station? Virgil Tibbs. Well, yeah, because he's catching. He's the like early waiting train. for his train. And I love because there's like two trains oh. that come through that town. <laughs> I love the whole train thing though, because he is arrested, he is brought in, but immediately he builds that credibility. Well, he's like building up a case for credibility, and that is like the first mark in his scoreboard. That was a really well, clumsy metaphor. First off, but. <laughs> we're immediately on Tibbs' side, and we immediately see how just unjust and racist his arrest is. Because Sam sees him and immediately, like, goes in there, like, super hot, like, pulls a gun on him immediately when, like, Tibbs goes to, like, reach for his bag to, like, pull out his badge. And, like, like it, it should, it wouldn't matter at all what virgil tibbs was like wearing or anything like i don't want what i'm about to say to sound like that like if no matter what he was wearing like he should not have been treated the way he was but he's in a suit and a tie and is sitting on the bench reading that book yeah. he looks more professional and more trustworthy than sam woods does going in there 
And so like, I feel like, and I feel like that's a conscious choice to like really show how, you know, it would be ludicrous no matter what, how quickly he is arrested. Because as is pointed out later by Gillespie, Sam doesn't even question him. He just immediately arrests him. Oh, for sure. And the way that they shot him well, when he had his hands on the wall with that kind of like very calm Mm -hmm. stare under his arm. Because he's been through this before. You can tell he's been through it before. I mean, it made me fucking mad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's set up so that you are immediately angry and you're immediately on Tibbs' side, and it is so effective. And I think here's where we start to really see, like, that Poitiers stare where he's not yes. really responding. Because when he does speak, he's generally pretty soft-spoken and calm. He gets, like, flashes of energy mm-hmm. on, like, at certain points throughout the film that are, like, very carefully chosen that I think are really good. But like, it's when he's not saying anything that I feel like he's at his most intense. And that's like, almost when I got even more on his side as I was like, you are having to sit here and just like silently take this. And that's so dumb because what is happening is so unfair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I loved the way that the scene in the chief's office was lit. Number one. Two, we've talked about the performance and the kind of the train whistle coming in to help build that credibility. And I fucking went insane for the reveal of him being a police officer. I loved it so much. And also, again, built my indignant feelings because freaking Gillespie had to call his police chief to confirm. Yeah, he gives him the badge and Gillespie's still like, I'm going to call your commanding officer. And I love how Tibbs like tells him where it is. And he's like, um, it's long distance, but I'll pay for it. Oh, yeah. Total power move right there. That's another thing is Colbert, uh, his wallet was taken and he was robbed of like what? 600 $900, something like that. 600 bucks or something. Yeah, something like that. And um, Tibbs has, like, a lot of cash in his wallet. Not, like, a ton of cash, but, like, a good amount of cash. Like, enough that you you would expect someone to have with them if they were traveling and, like, got a decent salary in a time when we were a cash society and you didn't really have credit cards. Yeah. And Gillespie is, like, very indignant about him having that much money and asks him, like, why do you have that much money? And Tibbs is like, because I got paid that money. I earned I it fair bank. and square and <laughs> and reveals that he makes a lot more than Gillespie does. And I was like, Good, yes, get him, get that dough. <laughs> you show them, Virgil. Yeah. So I, I loved I think, that he got paid more than Gillespie, and I loved that he offered to pay for that phone call. I know. It's because you love when people are petty. <laughs> when they're on the right side oh god yes especially yes. when they're on the right side <laughs> yes so the- be petty when you're right it's not petty if it's making a point ian <laughs> whatever you say um so at the end of that scene i also loved the kind of exchange between virgil and his police chief too because there's there's a talk of like hey you should help with this is kind of the gist that we get coming from the police chief. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out how I actually feel about this line because Virgil responds saying, no, sir, I'm not prejudiced. And part of me was thinking like, oh God, this was probably pandering to the white academy at the time. Because it's... So my first thought at that line was Pride and Prejudice Cop Edition. My second thought 
was that, and I think this is because of a conversation that happens later in the movie, uh-huh. is it humanizes Virgil by not having him be this emotionless, idealized hero. Mm-hmm. Like he's still, I think, without question, the hero of this film. But it shows that like he is bitter and he is angry and like yeah for completely valid reasons but there's like a moment that i really want to talk about later in the film where that like kind of gets in his way a little bit Mm -hmm. and it's like the idea that like he is definitely smarter than everybody else in the room but he's not infallible and i think it kind of humanizes his character but i agree when i heard that line i was like "Mm, let's see what they do with this like i was a little trepidatious yeah so i in the lens of the time okay fine but I, I'm still, it, it still kind of didn't sit right with me. It still doesn't sit right with me. Moving swiftly into the next scene at the morgue, this was like the first extremely satisfying thing for me. So first, the cinematography in this, they, they've been pulling in these very well, I want to tight... talk about Gillespie asking for Virgil's help. I want to oh, talk yeah, about this. Because Virgil, Virgil's very ready to leave. And Gillespie doesn't just like... I don't think he actually says, I need your help. But um, he had talked to Virgil's captain on the phone, and apparently Virgil is like their star homicide investigator. And Virgil's like, I'm going to leave. Why should I help you? And Gillespie is like, because we don't have a star homicide investigator. Basically, without straight up saying, I need you, is saying, I need you. (laughs) Which I think is an interesting thing with Gillespie's character that despite a lot of other stuff he does that is super cringeworthy and not good at all, it gives us hope for a good character arc for him at that point early in the film, which I think is really important. Because I think while you don't... I don't want to say I liked Gillespie, because I didn't. I didn't hate him as much. By the end, I was at peace with Gillespie. I had hope for him. I think that's what it is. I had hope for him. I had hoped that he could be better because in that moment, he shows that he is willing to put, maybe not fully aside, but at least on the back burner, his own prejudice, his own racism, his own discriminatory tendencies, whatever you want to call it. He's willing to put it on a back burner because of the importance of solving the case. Yeah. He believes in something greater than just his own personal and like feelings. Right, in which Virgil also is willing to put aside, like, the shit that just happened to him. Again, on a back burner, not completely putting it aside, but, like, is willing to... They're they're able to sort of, like, make a tenuous peace for the sake of doing their jobs, because they are both people who care very much about doing their jobs. Yeah, yeah. Which is, like, their one thing that they have in common that's going to, like, bring them closer together over the course of the film, because that is how buddy cop comedies work. <laughs> Oh, I think we're good. We can end the episode there, right? I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> I just explained buddy cop comedies. Oh my goodness. So moving into the morgue scene, I this again, more wonderful payoff. So first cinematography, loved how they carried this close up on the action, like of his hands manipulating the body of different people's expressions. Mm-hmm. Like they did this multiple times to kind of heighten I guess the suspense of stuff. Um, they they sometimes will tend to like getting close as if allowing the viewer to also look for evidence. Yes. 
Yes. Which is kind of cool. There's one scene in particular they do it with a car mm-hmm. that I thought was like especially so awesome. So good. But really, the my my favorite kind of like part of the scene is how standoffish the coroner and doctor are, or the undertaker. I don't know who the one. Like anyway, they're in there. I think undertaker. He's talking about a coffin. Yeah. So anyway. They are super standoffish and are like, are we really going to get all this stuff for this guy who's just coming in here? And like, also this black guy that's coming in here because they like won't even touch his coat. Oh, Like, they're being total assholes. Yeah, like there is there is never a question about like the everything people say or do to get in Virgil's way or like to be mean to him or to try and kill him. There is never any question that it is about anything other than race. Yeah, for sure. But he, he, the way that he just casually drops all this knowledge is extremely satisfying for me. I There's one bit, though, where he's talking about, I think it's rigor mortis or something, but he's like, it, it takes this many hours to set in. And then he just kind of looks over at Gillespie and goes, right, chief? Showing that he knows more than anybody else in the room, proving that he is smarter than Gillespie, but giving Gillespie the chance to save like face. confirm and save face. What, like, a powerhouse but, like, good political, like, move to make while you're trying to, like, navigate this. It's brilliant. Oh, totally agreed. And I think it was, like, that was something about brain temperature. So. Yeah, it was something like that. Anyway, it's, that's the, my key takeaway from that is, like, all the knowledge just dropped in this room for these poor people. Not poor people. Wrong way to put it. For these inexperienced people from a small town. Yeah, because, I mean, odds are they have not really seen anything like this, or if they have, it has not been a really long time. Or it was a murder that wasn't of a very rich white man who was bringing a lot of money into the town and therefore wasn't going to be as thoroughly investigated. Yes. Yes. So super quickly after that, we get thrown into a beautifully shot chase scene. The camera work in the Oh, my God, this is so good. I did get a little motion sick. Well, but it was worth it, right? (laughs) I was like... I was like a couple white claws in and had like a <laughs> touch motion sick with the way they were bouncing around. But it was really, really well shot. Like I loved what they were going for, even oh, if I had same. to close my eyes for a second. And I think really the standout shot for me is, uh, his name's Warren, right? The the fugitive? I think so. Um, the, the, him running, trying to run across the bridge <laughs> to Arkansas. Because he's trying to cross state lines. There's the bit where he runs to one side where the train is coming through and then the cops are on the other side. And I'm like, oh, my God, you guys messed up. That train could go on for miles. Where I work, there is, like, train tracks that I have to go over to sometimes, like, leave work and, like, get out of the parking lot. And um, I've gotten stuck when a train came through a couple of times. And it's the worst. <laughs> Oh so that goodness. was literally my thoughts. I was like, mm, you guys are never going to get him. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you messed up. You fucked up. Oh but of course God. they call and they call Gillespie. And I love this shot because we know about this like crazy chase that has been going on. There's that beautiful wide shot mm-hmm. where we can see the bridge over the river between Mississippi and Arkansas. We see this like tiny little dot running across it. Cut to Gillespie in his cop car chilling oh my god being like on the radio like, yeah no this, no i got him i see him this is like some of that very clear cop movie visual identity right here like it is through the driver's side window with him kind of at a medium to close length and like 
you just see him there calm and like, all right, let's go and do this. And he, you get the camera that's on him as he's moving down the bridge. So I, I don't know. This felt like a very, um, like canonical sort of shot for a movie like this. Does that make sense? Yeah, like you kind of have to have that shot. But it was so badass. I loved it. It was. It was a, it was a kind of badass, and I again I think it sets up Gillespie as like a tier above the other people he's working with. Yes, yes. Well, and the way that he just has to pull up beside the guy running, and the guy running stops. Like, what's he gonna do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So next standout scene for me is with uh, Miss Colbert in the station. Which this actress? Oh my god, kills Lee it. Grant, fucking badass. She is so She's good. So good in this scene, and her and Poitier together in this scene are so phenomenal. Oh my god, yes. I also just have dotted throughout my notes. I love this score. I'm here for this score. I was God. I had so much fun watching this. Oh, I did too. I totally did too. But the the scene between Virgil and Miss Colbert was so charged. So one. I love how because he is Virgil the one that comes tells back her. to the station. Well, he goes back to the station. The chief isn't there, and you've got these like this other like dim white cop again that bumbling works cops. at the station. We see multiple times. Um, who I was like, I'm pretty sure that man is involved in something illegal because he was like listening to like the chief's phone calls and like all this other stuff. And I was like, I bet you're part of something illegal. Um, they never show us anything he's part of that's like like super illegal in the film but like i just i have my suspicions anyway (laughs) so uh he's telling virgil like you can't go back there mrs colbert's there she doesn't know her husband's dead yet and you see virgil like make the decision that he's like somebody's got to tell this woman she needs to know so he goes back there and he tells her and he tells her very plainly and a little bluntly but clearly with compassion exactly the compassion that he showed after that oh but in this scene, the way that he tries to comfort her and then... Her reaction, yeah. too, I think is so good and so believable where it's not an immediately an immediate breakdown. She has to process it. Mm-hmm. And then that's when he holds her hand to like try and comfort her and like helps her to sit down because she doesn't want to sit down. He's like, no, you need to sit down. And she does, and that's when she finally breaks down. And then, as you said, she asks to be left alone and he respects yeah. that. Well, and the way the camera went fuzzy at the end, too, I don't know. My mind was kind of blown there because it's like you're right there with her where you don't see anything and you were just in your feelings. So, I, yeah. Oh, no, it was superb scene. Beautiful. So, so good. I think high points of the next like sequence here is they bring in the guy that they were chasing, Warren, I, again, I believe was his name. It's very clear that Virgil's like, this is suspect. He's probably not the one that killed Mr. Colbert. <laughs> he like Well, because he had arms. been examining the body because they left mm-hmm. him to like get evidence. He's got that box of some sort of evidence that he's going to give to the FBI lab. But yeah, he checks the guy's arms and he notices that he's left-handed. And he's like, well, it was pretty clear. We don't know it yet. But like he starts asking the other cops who are like congratulating themselves and like already starting to tell these like embellished stories about the chase uh if the guy is like left-handed and they're like yeah sure he's left-handed he's like well it's pretty clear that like mr colbert was killed by somebody who was right-handed and of course 
Gillespie is like, no, this is the guy. We've got the guy. Like, why would he run? He had his wallet. Like, even though the guy's continuing to maintain that he found the wallet. Like, he just saw Gillespie there and he, like, took his wallet. They've got the wrong guy. And it's, like, super sure. But the standoff between Gillespie and Virgil about the evidence. Mm -hmm. One, we get the beautiful Poitiers stare. And two, builds our indignancy because he's immediately put in the cell with Warren. Obviously just Warren, even though there are empty cells. Because he's not going to hand over the evidence. Yeah, he's going to give the evidence to the FBI himself. Well, and obviously, because it's going to get suppressed. Right. Like, that's what he's worried about. And Gillespie's like, no, give me the evidence. So then he has him put in the cell for withholding evidence. And I love the way that Virgil turns this into such a great opportunity for himself. Oh my goodness, yes. Oh my god, it's so smart. He interrogates Warren about this. He like he, well, he he doesn't inter- like he interrogates him, but he gets Warren to tell it to him. He like makes Warren think he can help him. He's his friend, which I'm pretty sure Warren when Virgil like comes into the chief's office while he's being questioned i'm pretty sure warren throws around some racial slurs it's hard to remember who exactly all throws them around because they get thrown around a lot so then to have basically everybody but virgil yeah and dolores and i don't think mrs and mrs colbert and that's like it the fact that Virgil's able to then go in there and like get this guy to trust him and like like him it just shows you how smart virgil is Mm-hmm. And in that scene, too, I just, it was a feast for the eyes. So it starts with him sitting on the cot in there, kind of with his chin in his hand, beautifully lit against the dark background. Later in the scene, you see him kind of underneath a grated iron shadow. And I'm just like, the way that they are highlighting his face and his expressions and his like, I don't know, it added to his like, feeling of cunning in my mind yeah it so heightened the experience for me it's so good and then meanwhile you have gillespie who is like talking to the other cops and like realizing that virgil's right Uh, again and this is this is the thing that i think sets gillespie's character apart from the people around him and makes him makes you able to be more hopeful for his character is that he realizes that virgil is right and he's like okay we gotta get him out of there and so he and Sam go back and he gets him to sign the paper of like wrongful um arrest uh-huh. and all that stuff and then he asks Virgil to stay and help them and Virgil's like what the fuck man no like I'm going okay but he does drop some more knowledge oh yeah because he because he has to he can't help it which he can't help himself no. We get a quick scene with the mayor where the mayor basically tells Gillespie he has to go get him because Mrs. Colbert is like I don't care that he's black. He will be on this case. Gillespie goes and gets him, and we get this amazing scene at the train station that, hands down, my favorite scene in the movie. It starts with this beautiful wide shot of the train station, and I, like, literally screamed out loud, oh my god, what a beautiful shot when I saw this, because it's the wide shot. We see Virgil pacing on the platform kind of close to that bench where we first saw him. Uh And just into frame walks Gillespie. And the way that they had them on opposite sides of the bench. Oh my God, so Kind of looking away from each other while they're having this like really tense conversation. It takes a long time for them to make eye contact and to like actually 
speak to each other instead of just like at each other oh, while yeah. they're looking away. Masterful directing. So good. And the, a phenomenal performance from both actors. Like, mm-hmm. oh mm-hmm. my God, they both played it. But my so favorite well. is how Gillespie manipulates Virgil he, in the stage. He plays on Virgil's <laughs> vanity. It, yeah. it, he knows exactly what to say. And what he says is, I think you're going to come back and you're going to help me because you cannot resist the option to prove that you are smarter than all of us. And specifically all of us white people. Like he he knows that Virgil is angry and he's like, cool, I'm going to get you to channel that to like solve this murder that I cannot solve. Yeah, yeah. And it just ends with Virgil not saying anything after Gillespie gives him that speech, but it, he just turns around and picks up his suitcase and they walk back to the cop car. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's, oh my God, that scene is so good. We do get a quick scene at a car repair shop where another African-American man apparently owns it. They're, he's staying with them. There was a little bit of a nod to the like, I'll just get a motel and the car shop owner was like, you don't know where you are, sir. (laughs) Um, I am, I'm glad they like highlighted that piece at least like very brief, even if they never, ever, ever let you forget where you are, what time it is and what Virgil is facing at that time. Like they just never let you forget it. They are relentless on it. And I think that is so important to, the message of the film to driving the film and to keeping you engaged as like a viewer. So we know that Virgil's all set up. He's on the case. He's doing his thing. And so he's going to go interview Mrs. Colbert. So the interview for me was pretty nondescript. What I loved was him investigating the car. And that was really the standout here. Again, the point of view, you mentioned this earlier, Maggie, Mm -hmm. but like the point of view shot of him looking around the car the slow moving of the the convertible open, like, again, the suspense that was being yes, built. Yes, you were up close. You mm-hmm. were in there. Like, you are also looking for evidence. And then we see, like, the blood stain on the seat, and we just know. Oh, yes. And see him, like, pull this fern moss stuff, whatever the hell it was named, can't remember. Anyway, orchids grow in it. <laughs> but the way he was framed with the steering wheel and us seeing him from basically the passenger footwell, like, God, the framing of basically every shot in this thing. We find out, apparently, that this means that they need to go to Endicott's, which, can I just say, of course he would own a cotton farm. Of course he fucking would. He's the symbol of old school South and all of the bad things that come with it like that is what he is meant to show i think and and so virgil's kind of like contention with him and standing up to him is it's modern society like showing how outdated uh-huh. people like indicott are because we get the shots of the cotton fields and there's it opens mm-hmm. with this shot of like cotton just being like shredded by i are they still called cotton jennies i don't know but getting shredded by the machinery and it's like up close and it's loud mm-hmm. and it's brutal well and it's like you're going into the lion's den cuz we know from like the previous scene that Gillespie had to go with him they've established at this point that Indicott if he doesn't run the town he used to and he thinks he should and still does because he they're like he did not like Mr. Colbert which 
I don't know if they ever explicitly say why, but my guess is because Endicott probably pays his workers like shit and knows that they're going to want jobs at that factory, which probably pays better. Yes. Well, and let's be clear. In all the shots that kind of establish Endicott's farm, it's all African-American workers. I did love how they did focus on individual workers in this scene, though, because I think so often when you have this plantation view in movies it's so focused on the collective and it kind of dehumanizes all the people that are actually working Mm -hmm. whereas here we actually did get to see like these are people focus on the fact that there is like an undertone of exploitation oh yeah absolutely like it's i mean everything about the scene introducing him is meant to set up just like how backwards endicott is Mm-hmm. Um, which like he is oh, so noticeably sure. backwards, even in backwards town, and even where dangerous is he's backwards and he has power. Yes. So they meet him in the greenhouse. Yes, where he has all these oh my God. orchids. Huh. What do orchids grow in? Oh well, you know <laughs> what we find out because uh Virgil asks him about it. He compliments the flowers. You know, we talked about Gillespie playing a bit on Virgil's vanity earlier. Virgil plays Indicott. And plays on his vanity about his orchids. And Endicott makes some like super racist remarks and stuff to Virgil. Which I was like, dude, what the yeah. fuck? Like, about how they need like feeding, care, and uh, cultivation. Like, yeah. dude. I was like, People are not Jesus plants. Christ. <laughs> but uh, Virgil gets Endicott to say the name of whatever it is that orchids grow in that you and I can't remember, but which Virgil has said to Gillespie earlier when he found it in the car. And this is where we get that like mm-hmm. cool little character tick from Gillespie. He was like in a chair chewing gum really fast. But when Indicott says the name of the whatever it is, Gillespie immediately stops chewing. Did you just, you looked it up? Yeah. Okay. No, but I, I, I'm i pretty sure it was Fernroot. I just can't remember oh, that it starts with an E and that's all that I remember. <laughs> Whatever it is. But anyway, Gillespie stops chewing his gum and he know like he knows that Virgil's like probably onto something. And that's when Virgil like starts to question him about Colbert, which Endicott breaks the fuck out. He's like so mad that Virgil would dare question him. And we get an amazing moment. Indicott <laughs> slaps Virgil without pause. Virgil just smacks him right back. And you can you can tell who's been in a fight before. Yeah. And it's not the person crying at the end. No. <laughs> not at all. Yeah. <laughs> it was so vindicating. But yeah, I, I think I rewound that slap like four times. I was like, fuck yeah. Get him. You should make a gif out of I'm it. I'm sure there is a gif. But uh, Gillespie, of course, (laughs) grabs Virgil and is like, we got to go. We got to go. And Endicott says something to Gillespie. And this is where we're starting to see that Gillespie has at least started on this character arc. Like he's he's having a character Mm -hmm. arc and character development. Endicott expects him to do something about the fact that Virgil just slapped him. He goes, what are you going to do about it? And Gillespie says, nothing. (laughs) Did he say nothing or I don't know? I think he says, I don't know. No, I think he says, I don't know. So we're seeing him struggle with what he knows is right and then what he has always been told he should Mm -hmm. do. 
and what he's under pressure to do. And Endicott's like, your predecessor. Is that when he says that like your predecessor would have like shot him or something and claimed self-defense or no, the mayor says that to him. But still it's the same. Yeah. Yeah. But that immediately leads into the consequences of Virgil standing up to the system in the car chase. First, there's another scene though with Gillespie and Virgil at the car and this oh, is super right. important yeah, where yeah, Virgil yeah. is like, I know he did it. I know he's involved. And Gillespie's looking at Virgil and he says, and I I actually had to put on the subtitles because he says it so softly. So I was like, not 100% sure. But he says, man, you're just like the rest of us, aren't you? Probably the first time really registering that almost almost that like Virgil's like uh-huh. fully human, that like seeing somebody of a different race as similar to himself but also saying, like, you're the same because you're human because we both have anger. Yeah. It's, I don't know, it, it was a nice moment. I liked focusing on, like, the emotional similarity and, like, the idea of, like, people being similar because everyone experiences anger. Everyone can be taken over and blinded a little by their emotions because Gillespie's saying is he's like yeah maybe Endicott did it but you can't be so sure like your hatred of Endicott and people like him and all of your anger at like everything that's happened to you could be clouding your judgment in this instance yeah well and it makes Virgil more complex they I think they do a wonderful job of making Virgil complex without ever once making you feel like they're saying his anger is misplaced yes agreed So after that scene, car chase, actually very exhilarating in my mind. Another another buddy cop comedy thing that you have to have. Car there chase. you go. We've but had they, a foot chase and a car chase. Yeah, because you end up in this like weird industrial building where four white guys have Virgil cornered. And I mean, I, I presume they're basically like Endicott's goonings, like I don't think they ever established it. Like I think they're just like racist assholes. I mean, probably. They did have a Confederate flag license plate. And they're like, four against one? Like, come on. Yeah. Why don't you just like paint I'm a coward on your shirt? But it's it's shot beautifully. Poitier's performance is amazing as he's like slowly getting mm-hmm. cornered in that like, I guess it's an old mill building. And he is backed into a corner. But the sign on the wall behind him, did you catch what it said? What did it say? It was like, be careful. We don't want anyone to get hurt. It was such a nice touch. Oh, my God. And, like, I always, I feel like I always knew this, but, like, watching it, like, it just really drives it home, is the fact that, like, Virgil's defending himself with, like, that, like, pole that he has. There's, like, Mm -hmm. a steel rod that he has against, like, the other guys who have, like, chains and steel rods and stuff. But Virgil can only just defend himself. Like, the minute he starts really striking back at them, he's going to be in so much trouble. Like, it's so incredibly unjust and unfair that he's the one who's being attacked. He's the one who's backed into a corner. It is four against one, and he should be able to defend himself, but, like, he can only just defend himself without immediately potentially getting himself in a million times more trouble. Yeah, he can prevent bodily harm, but he can't neutralize the threat. Yes, and that in order for him to really be able to get out of there completely unscathed, Gillespie has to come. Mm-hmm. I did appreciate the fact that Gillespie made the decision to rough up a couple yes. of the guys, though. 
I do too. So it's again kind of showing more of that character arc. I mean, the fact that he lets them go is still problematic. Yeah. Throughout this whole thing, it's been very clear that Gillespie's like, you got to go away, Virgil. You're in incredible danger. You just don't, don't do it. But I love that Virgil is like, hey, Sam, why don't you take me on the same route that you took on the night you discovered the body? Yeah. <laughs> so like he does not like care for his safety. But also there's a really great line before they go into the diner about how Gillespie's basically saying the town's going to be in deep shit if you are also murdered. Yeah. Yeah, because Gillespie shows up at the diner, which is the first place mm -hmm. Sam went to. Yeah, but Virgil's like, I know, and basically throws it back at Gillespie because it's Gillespie's problem, not Virgil's problem. Yeah, he's like, if I get killed, (laughs) that's your problem. And it was just another power move. Yeah. Ugh, loved it. I want to say there's an important line, too, where... When they get to the diner, Sam's like, yeah, I go in and I always get like a piece of pie and like a Dr. Pepper or whatever. And he's like, do you want me to bring you anything, Virgil? And he's like, oh, I'm going in. Oh, yeah. Virgil doesn't care. No, Virgil doesn't <laughs> care. Like, he's like, no, 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 no. I got a job to do. I'm going in. Like, fuck Jim Crow. Like, no. Yeah. Well, and I already. So at the very beginning, we we like super glossed over the introduction to the cook at this diner. But he's creepy creepy. AF. So creepy. And like he's killing flies with a rubber band. All I'm saying, start with animals, graduate from there. You get an odd, you get an odd feeling from him for sure. I get super Norman Batesy vibes from him. I like looked up who played the cook because he was giving me like such major Anthony Perkins vibes. I, I see it. I totally see it. But anyway, like my very first note, okay, maybe my third note was, who is this cook? He's creepy. So I just want to put that out there. That was my third note. Okay. <laughs> it's out there. Believe me or not. I'll show you my notes later. I, um. Oh, yeah. I can't like fact check you in the moment. No, you could doctor them. Ugh, social You can. Here. Can you see? Nope. It's right there. I can't see. It's too small, Ian. <laughs> okay. So anyway, they get out of the diner. The shot of them talking over the cop car that then you can pan down to him in the cop car and then pan back up when he has to make the call. Like this was another one of those like mind-blowingly well-constructed like shots. Mm-hmm. That and the fact that you had the blinking neon eat sign just like created this again noir ambiance that I just ate up. I loved it. It was so good. No, it's so good. It's so good. So good. But they go on the ride. And notably, Sam takes a turn he didn't take the night before. Because at the, oh, at this point, too, by the way, I was so convinced that Sam was like part of the murder. Oh, you were? I just thought he was a creepy voyeur. I was so convinced, and I thought there was going to be a wider conspiracy because they had been, like, listening in on the chief's phone calls and stuff, him and the other cop. Oh, that would make sense. Which, frankly, I think would have actually been a better ending. I actually wasn't super... We'll get to it when I get there, but I was not super happy with the way they resolved the mystery. It was very anticlimactic. Anyway, he gets confronted about it, doesn't want to talk about it. Sam doesn't want to talk about it, that is. And Virgil just gets out of the car. This is the one part where I was like, what are you going to do, Virgil? Like, I'm so, why? Why, what? I was very worried for his safety. 
But you got some really cool, like, mirror shots of the chief in the back of the car, like, staring down Sam. As you can tell, his suspicion is, like, building. (laughs) Yeah, because he's like, well, Sam lied. And then he ends up arresting Sam because Sam had done, like, a bank deposit of, like, $600 Mm. or something. And he's like, you robbed Colbert. And Sam's insisting that he didn't. And Virgil reveals why Sam lied was that he didn't want them to drive by Dolores's house where she was going to undoubtedly be naked at the window again. And let me just point out for a second, like right after he is arrested, the Purdies, both the older brother and sister Dolores, immediately enter into the police station. It is revealed that she is 16. Yeah, which I was like, oh, like, what? no. <laughs> I This again, like there, while I found the movie very satisfying, on the flip side, that specific piece I was not super happy about because the Dolores I stuff. felt that it was a yeah, and I felt like that was somewhat of an unfair representation of folks from rural towns. You know what I mean? I did not like that. Like she was so one dimensional. They set her up as like just stupid. I I didn't like the way that I felt like having her and like her pregnancy and stuff be the whole reason behind the murder. It felt like it was trying to be maybe a little preachy. I wasn't entirely sure. I just it felt icky and exploitative. Yes. And it also felt like an easy way out of the mystery for it to be like, a, yeah. oh, this this wasn't actually about any of this like big stuff that we talked about going on on the town. It was just like the creepy cook got this girl pregnant and like needed money for an abortion. So he killed somebody, which I By was then like, apparently. this is why effective accessible birth control is important we also don't know how old the cook is so i don't know how gross their relationship was i mean he's pretty gross so very very creepy but i i wasn't sure if their relationship was illegal that's fair yeah yeah yeah. so and may or may not have been even worse the scene in the captain's office though was beautifully shot with dolores in the chair and virgil in the background i didn't like the way he talked to dolores either oh that i'm totally on board with like and initially i assumed that dolores was older i assumed that she was like eight or like 20 mm-hmm. or something like 18 or 20 somewhere in that range so i assumed she was like an adult and uh um, yeah he kept but apparently her not girl and i was like she's not a girl she's a woman and they're like she's 16 i was like oh no she actually is a girl oh this is bad yeah especially when they thought that sam was like having an affair with her Ugh, the frame was pretty i'll put it that way the scene was cringeworthy beautifully shot and i probably i mean the whole purpose was probably to make me feel super uncomfortable and it did but i also just found that whole scenario an unsatisfying ending to this mystery and all the stuff we'd been building up to although i guess you could make an argument that it's like all of the big machinations and conspiracies that everybody thought were in place and really it was just like a crime of opportunity this guy needed some money yeah because like this guy needed some money because like teenagers are stupid so like i guess you could say that there's some point in that but it just felt very unsatisfying to me given the rest of the film totally agree with you so really after that scene we get some wind up where virgil is basically trying to suss out okay who is going to provide the backroom abortions in this town 
he goes out to that that's like the first major point oh yeah because we're we're before roe v wade too at this point i can guarantee you not legal in mississippi at that time uh, yeah definitely not um he goes out to the factory site to do some investigation because apparently there was some pine found in colbert's skull like on his scalp mm-hmm. um and he's like hmm isn't that peculiar and gillespie just finds him gives him an admonishment for not being subtle because we also get some interspersed scenes of that wonderful racist gang out to get virgil just like driving around doing whatever they're doing i don't know do you not have something better to do with your time probably not that's why they need a factory magnet so anyway like this is you get some building of like gillespie's and um virgil's character it apparently like virgil goes back and has a drink at some dinner with gillespie at gillespie's house they start talking about love in my head this turns into a romance oh yeah they get to be a little buddy gillespie's like well and gillespie says like you're the only person who's probably really been in here exactly and i was like forbidden romance right here in the making but not really I told you, Pride and Prejudice <laughs> Cop Edition. Yeah, I don't... The way that they kind of moved this through, it didn't feel very elegant. Because all of a sudden, the contact... It, it it just... I don't know. I think it goes with like the, the part of where the result of the mystery being is unsatisfying. Because I feel like it's suddenly... Because they'd given us all the characters mm-hmm. we needed pretty much early on in the film, but we hadn't heard a lot from a lot of them for a long time, so it felt like they were trying to like rush a little bit. Well, and to put it in perspective, it's a 110-minute movie, movie, and they tie it up in like 10 or 12 minutes. So like they did such a good job at the beginning and towards the middle of building out the suspense and I like we said that it was fairly well paced, but I would argue that they needed a little bit more linger on the back end, not excessive amounts. I would agree, or just, or just like a different result to the mystery that didn't need as much like filling in. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. So anyway, the contact that Warren has given Virgil about who provides abortions in the town. He goes on it, goes over to Mrs. Bellamy's. A beautifully shot scene between Mrs. Bellamy and Virgil, where Virgil's basically trying to get her to tell him who has paid for Dolores's abortion. And the one shot that stands out in my mind is where there's this bare light bulb right in front of his face as he is like trying to convince Miss Bellamy that it's like, I am not here to ruin your life. I am here to catch somebody else. And I think the way he puts it is the difference between the white experience in prison or the, versus the black experience in prison during that time. Yes. Um, speak again, speak in truth. Not just during that time. Yeah, true. True. So anyway, that that is we get Dolores like entering the scene serendipitously this is this is again where it's like okay there's a lot of deus ex machina right now that i'm not super big a fan on but is what it is so she's there runs away immediately obviously because virgil is in the midst of talking to um miss bellamy but runs away virgil chases after her and somebody pulls a gun on him from the shadows which the way this was lit gorgeous the reveal underwhelming Mm mm-hmm 
Oh, I also, for a space of time, when they introduced the Dolores pregnancy, I was like, wait, did Mrs. Colbert kill her husband because he was having an affair with I thought that too. Dolores, and it's his baby? I ran through a lot of scenarios. I'm happy that it wasn't that, because then I was going to be like, uh. But now it's just like you ruined one of, like, three female characters. And the best one. And, like, the one who was most fleshed out. Yeah, I was happy. Well, I thought Mrs. Bellamy, I mean, she's not on screen very long, but I thought the actress did a really good job with her. It's mostly Dolores, who I just thought was, like, super underdeveloped. Yeah, it's like she was a pale imitation of Molly from Tom Jones. It's like I saw a lot of the similar, like, look and the similar character, quote-unquote, traits, but Molly was portrayed in Tom Jones as with such like zero judgment, whereas and and like had some asides and some laughs with the audience, especially when you had some reveals of other people being in her loft as well. Like, I don't know, it was yeah. that felt like it was done in good fun. This felt like it was very, as you put it earlier, exploitative. So really the way that they like wrapped this up is the gang shows up, the cook shoots. Dolores' because, brother. Oh, because uh, the gang shows up with Dolores' brother, or he comes separately. I'm not 100% sure. I think he was in sure. the gang, like, as part Everyone of wants to shoot Virgil until Virgil's like, check her purse. This is what went down. And then her brother's, like, freaking out. Give me your purse. Then he sees, like, the money in it. And so the he shoots the cook, and the cook shoots him, I guess. I don't think the... Does he shoot the cook? I couldn't I tell exactly. I thought that the cook shot him first. Like, the co- okay. The brother goes to make honestly, a shot, but. I don't care who shot first. And yeah, I really don't care that immaterial. either of those. I don't care that either of those characters die. Like, I just, I don't know. It felt and this like is a, why it's a little, not satisfying. It felt a little sloppy. Like, I was just like, oh, this just wasn't the climactic ending that I was expecting. It was, you know what it reminded me of a little bit? And I might probably, am definitely going to get some flack for this. It reminded me of a Neil Gaiman novel where the entire premise is amazing. The in- execution is phenomenal. All of the characters are good. Like, it's so well done. And then you get to the end and it doesn't quite deliver on the promise where it just kind of like fizzles and is like a little anticlimactic and feels a little bit rushed because it felt like maybe the writer wasn't quite sure how to deliver on the setup. So the one the the one Neil Gaiman novel that I've read is American Gods, and I did not feel that way about it. But I do feel that way about this movie. <laughs> I'm about halfway through that one. And here's the thing. I still have read multiple Neil Gaiman novels. Like, it has not stopped me from reading them and, like, enjoying them for the most part. Yeah, the journey still makes it worth it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the journey is still amazing. So uh, that gives me hope that was about halfway through American Gods. Ooh, ooh, yes, finish it. It's good. But we roll almost immediately into the confession scene, and it ends, the, the end of his confession, the cook's confession is, that's all. And I think that encapsulates our feelings about the way this was wrapped up. Yeah, because he's like, basically, it was a crime of opportunity. I needed the money. And we're just like, like there that's wasn't all. any... 
larger one. Which, like, again, like I said, you some people would argue that, like, that is a commentary in itself, that, like, all of this stuff happens and it's really just, like, accident or coincidence or, like, a more mundane reason. It's, like, just because this guy needed some money because he accidentally got his girlfriend pregnant. Like, and, like, I get that and stuff. And, like, you could say, like, that's the argument of, like, cinema and art reflecting life. But, like... It's also cinema and art and fiction, so, like, give me a little something extra. Like, I live life every day. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a little something more. Yes. So, anyway, last scene, really sweet. My note here is, yes, you looked back, because Gillespie does look back after they say goodbye. and They shake hands. They do. And his line about, you take care, you hear. Oh, it was such, it was like the sweetest thing that Gillespie could have ever said. They smile at each other. Oh, like the only time in the film? They actually smile at each other. <laughs> it's the only time, I think it's the only time Gillespie smiles. And there's a couple other times where Virgil smiles, but it's with like this like bittersweet or like sardonic laugh to it. Like it's not like a genuine, you know what I mean? Like it's not like a, it's like a, a smile because you're like, it's not like a positive smile. <laughs> Not because he's feeling any good emotions, except for this last one when they smile at each other. And it's just a really nice moment of him getting back on the train. And it's kind of a bit of symmetry from the opening, which started with him getting off mm-hmm. the train. So I really enjoyed this movie. I'm. It does have flaws. I did too. The journey is worth it, even if the ending is not. <laughs> oh, people should definitely, definitely watch this. As of this recording, it is... On Amazon Prime, yes, for Prime as members. in so like I I'm sure so many other people out there are also stuck in their homes right now, and we definitely recommend this yes, as a watch quarantine it. watch. So lists, I guess I am struggling with exactly where to put this, as we've discussed before. So I'm putting it generally where I think it's gonna go. But it's my number 10. So definitely in the top here. It's below Mrs. Miniver and above On the Waterfront. So for me, I saw a lot of similarities with On the Waterfront and kind of the style and the look of the film. And even to some extent, the themes of like the little guy going against the system. Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of liked. It's more it's about class kind of where in the heat of the night's about race. Exactly. But I I liked the way that In the Heat of the Night didn't have so much, I guess, redemption at the end. It's like people were still flawed and more realistic and like it's not sunshines and rainbows all of a sudden. It's just I'm no longer in that. Do you remember how On the Waterfront ends? It is not sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, but it's like he's... (sighs) I don't know. It felt more positive to me where it's like he's walking in all victorious. I mean, he's beat up like to within an inch of his life, but still (laughs) it's like what they think is going to, what I was thinking was going to come after the end of the film Mm -hmm. is kind of more what I'm thinking of there. Um, Now with Mrs. Miniver, I honestly think, while I love Mrs. Miniver, I, it should not be as highly ranked as it should be in my list. So, like, to be quite frank, I would also love to, I think, probably put Miss Miniver lower. So I know this is a cop-out for me saying <laughs> why I ranked it after Miss Miniver. But <laughs> um, I put it put it after Miss Miniver, but before On the Waterfront. Oh, 
Oh, yeah, that's a cop-out. It's totally a cop-out, but Miss Miniver should probably be in the teens. So I'm going to leave it at that. Wait, so why not put it above Mrs. Miniver? Because, uh, you know what? I am going to put it above Mrs. Miniver. It's because I liked the direct comparison with On the Waterfront better is really what it came down to. So really, it should be at number nine above Mrs. Miniver because it really does deal with like much more relatable themes for me. And that would put it after it happened one night. And I hate to do this, but I don't actually hate to do this. It happened one night is just a delight. I mean, I'm not going to argue with you. Like, I love it happened one night. Um, So it is my... It is much less heavy, though. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, anyway, absolutely. You do your thing. Absolutely. So. <laughs> um, In the Heat of the Night is my new number seven. Ooh. So it is above Rebecca, uh, which also had an ending that I found a little bit unsatisfactory. I did not find that mystery as satisfying as I think it could have been either. Um, But I think in At the Heat of the Night, I like that it has... They have similar vibes. I mean, they're both like super noir mm-hmm. mystery, that kind of thing. Um, I think at the heat of the night, I like the broader societal themes that are in it. I liked the like breakneck pace of it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think there's so much more nuance to our main characters than there are in Rebecca. Like, I think the uh, Joan Fontaine's character in Rebecca has a lot of nuance, and I think Mrs. Danvers is like an amazing villain, mm-hmm. but like. Maxim de Winter doesn't really have that much to him. Like, you know, a lot of the other characters don't have that much to them. Yeah. And there's not really, like, as much of... I liked the, like, contention, the level of contention between Tibbs and Gillespie a lot. It is after On the Waterfront for me. Ooh. I really loved On the Waterfront. Honestly, I think it should be higher on my list. Um, I think about that movie a lot. For me, when Brando and performance and Eva Marie Saint's performances are just astounding I love the cinematography of On the Waterfront so much and I generally am a sucker for black and white cinematography yeah but this one had the contrast like black and white yes but it still wasn't in black and white okay it makes sense like (laughs) like they were able to like this is the closest I have seen a Technicolor movie that we have watched for this podcast get to kind of the black and white cinematography mm-hmm. with its use of shadow the way it did and the way it like allowed things to just be dark yeah but i just thought the cinematography on the waterfront was so amazing and then i also think about the creativity in some of it in particular there's the scene where terry is telling Edie that he had a hand in her brother's death and there's just the whistle and the sounds of the dockyard and you can't hear them speaking, but you just see, like, the escalation and reaction of the argument. Yeah. And the conversation. And, like, I think about that scene all the time and just how cool and inventive and effective that was and how beautifully shot that was. And so, for me, In the Heat of the Night doesn't quite reach that. I also found On the Waterfront immensely satisfying. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I found the mystery in this just not super satisfying. I think if the mystery had been more satisfying in, like, that last maybe 20 minutes of the film had been a little bit more satisfying and I think a little bit tighter and neater than it would very possibly be above on the waterfront on my list. But because of that, I have to put it below. I'm okay with that, obviously. (laughs) Obviously, we both thought very highly of it. Uh, Yes, it's in both of our top tens, so worth it. We've mentioned it on some other episodes. I know at one point we said after episode 40, we were going to reorganize our lists. Um, We have two more canonical episodes 
um, for the 1960s. So uh, next canonical episode will be Oliver, and then I think it's Midnight Cowboy, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, It is. And then we'll hit the 70s. So between the 60s and 70s, we're going to do a special episode where we go through our lists and we reorganize them and we talk about maybe like why we made those changes in hindsight. And I also want to talk about like movies that maybe we think about a lot that like it took some time for us to maybe really get the full impact of it and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So that's something to look forward to. We also have our second podcast anniversary coming up Ooh. on April 1st. So we will be doing another special episode in celebration for that. And for our anniversary episodes, we like to do movies that maybe are not best picture material, but that we really enjoy and love. Yes. You're in store for a delight. <laughs> so that'll that'll be a fun one. Until next time, you can find us on social media. We are at Best Pictures Pod on Instagram and Twitter. You can also email us in at best at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. Also, uh, rate, subscribe, review. I don't think we've said that in a while, but um, that definitely helps us out. Definitely does. So thank you for listening and join us next canonical episode for Oliver.